This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. All right, we're going to get started. If you recall, last week, our rapid survey of Scripture revealed that God has always intended for humanity to be a kingdom of priests. From Genesis and creation, to Exodus and liberation, to Jesus and the coming kingdom, to revelation and the conclusion of all things, the repeated theme is this. Humans are called to be a kingdom of priests, reigning and worshiping as the interface between God and His creation. As a kingdom of priests, they are tasked with both bringing God's wise and generous order to the world, as well as giving articulate voice to creation's glad and grateful praise back to its maker. And today, what we're going to do is look a little more closely at the teachings of Jesus himself within that larger overarching arc of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11, we find one of Jesus' most iconic teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really crucial to understanding Jesus' own understanding for his disciples and followers. The Sermon on the Mount is the new Sinai event, that place and time where God forms the folks who had just been brought out of Egypt into his new people, which he describes as a kingdom of priests. If you'll recall the Exodus passage last week, I'll just go ahead and read it again. It it, it takes place at Sinai, Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So God brings the people out of Egypt, he delivers them, they go through the Red Sea, all of these things are figured in the life of Jesus. And so they come out of Egypt, they go through the Red Sea, but before they can enter into the promised land, they meet God at Sinai, where God forms them, this is where they get the covenant, where God makes an agreement with them and lays out for them their vocation, their calling to be this kingdom of priests. The Sermon on the Mount recapitulates that event. If you look at the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus mirrors and echoes this same process. And the Sermon on the Mount is in many ways the new Sinai event. This is the place where Jesus gathers his new followers and lays out for them what it looks like to live in the new creation. And based on Jesus' earlier teaching, we can situate the Sermon on the Mount within a larger framework, the larger framework that Jesus is working with as he's getting ready to give to them this new paradigm, this new perspective on life, is this. God's future is arriving in the present. In the person and work of Jesus, you can practice right now the habits of life which find their goal in the future, ultimate coming of God's kingdom. So Jesus is going to give them a new perspective 
It's not a random perspective, but it's a perspective that's framed within this understanding that God's kingdom is breaking into our world. You can start participating now. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount and this understanding, the telos, if you keep track of that vocabulary word that we've been using, is not happiness, but blessedness. This is a really important concept that our writer draws out. In Hebrew, this concept, ashrei or baruch, is the blessing, the happy, the fulfilled. It's not just a state of mind. Happiness can occur in any number of contexts. But here, this concept of bless, blessing, blessed, is something that distinguishes Jesus' teaching from Aristotle and others of that type who were trying to help people find happiness. And the difference is this. The source, the, um, the ground, the foundation for the happiness, on the one hand, can be your own activities. For Aristotle and others, just work hard, do well, you can create happiness. Or it could be luck. The cards fall your way today and you're happy. The blessed concept, however, it includes happiness, yes, but it includes it always as the result of something else, namely the loving action of the Creator God. So in the Beatitudes, sometimes they get translated as happy, sometimes they get translated as blessed. Blessed is a better way to understand this because what Jesus is talking about are not things that you create on your own. This list of beatitudes are not things that just it might happen for you if you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. But these things are all realities that come about in a person's life when God is at work in and through their life. So these are not random occurrences they're not things that you create, but Jesus is saying within this larger reality, the embreaking kingdom of God, here are some things that you can expect. So within that framing, let's just read through the list as they're given in our reading. N.T. Wright has a nice translation of them within this particular framing. Blessings on the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessings on the mourners, you're going to be comforted. Blessings on the meek, you're going to inherit the earth. Blessings on people who hunger and thirst for God's justice, you're going to be satisfied. Blessings on the merciful, you'll receive mercy yourselves. Blessings on the pure in heart, you will see God. Blessings on the peacemakers, you'll be called God's children. Blessings on people who are persecuted because of God's way. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Blessings on you when people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. Celebrate and rejoice. There's great reward for you in heaven. That's how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Notice now in this list, these things are not describing the way things are. When you look out at the world around us, this is not the picture that you see. But what Jesus is doing here is he is announcing a new state of affairs. 
a new reality which is in the process of breaking into our world. These are declarations of something that previously wasn't the case, but now is the case. Right? This is the witness that the life of heaven, which for many people for so long was so distant and so unreal and so far away, Jesus is saying it is now in the process of coming true on earth. So his Beatitudes, this is why it's important to see them as blessed, not just happy. These are not just random things. This is the result. This is what it looks like when God gets involved in a person's life. When God begins to work in and through humans, this is the image. This is the reality that is coming to pass in our present world. So if we take those blessings then, and we return to that threefold progression that we looked at in chapter 2. The idea that character is not formed by random, but it involves understanding what's the goal, what are the steps to get there, and then how do we make those steps habitual. If we take now the Beatitudes and we say, if this is the picture of the reality, this is what God wants to bring about, fold that back into that threefold progression and what do we get? First, the goal is God's kingdom. What does that look like based on this list? A time of comfort, of heaven coming to earth at last, of the renewal of creation, of plenty, of mercy, of reward, and above all, of seeing God himself. That's the goal. So, what are the steps? How, do, how does one get to the goal? The goal has arrived in the present now that Jesus is here. So this is a reality, not because of us, not because of our own goodness, but because of the life of Jesus, that's the bridge. How do we get from our present to God's future? Jesus. Jesus is the pathway. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the door that enables us to enter into God's future. So what do we do in three how do we make this part of our lives? Well, those who follow Jesus can begin to practice in the present what our writer is calling the habits of heart and life, which correspond to the way that things are in God's kingdom. The way that they will be eventually, yes, but the way that they also already are because Jesus is here. So that list of blessings upon people, these are the habits that we can cultivate. Notice that this ultimate promised future corresponds to our present reality in two ways. And these ways are somewhat contrasting. The first, when you look at this list of things that are clearly not the way things are in full right now, but what you see in this list is on the one hand, there are some things where there's a direct correspondence where the future state is exactly anticipated in the present habits of life. Things like humility, meekness, mercy, purity, peacemaking. Notice that these are habits of life. They're not just rules. They're not just follow your heart, but it's, a, it's their elements, virtues of a certain type of character. These things, when the kingdom arrives in full, they're not going to go away. So we anticipate the future kingdom by walking in humility, 
Cultivating the habit of humility is not something that we just do in the meanwhile, and then when God's kingdom comes, we're done with that, and we can all prance about and be proud. No, not at all. The humility that we live and practice now anticipates. That's picking up the umbrella, understanding. Humility may not be the way of our world now, but it is going to be the ultimate reality. So I'm taking my umbrella and I'm setting out, even though you might say, well, I don't see a cloud in the sky. Say, no, no, it's going to rain. So I'm going to cultivate a life of humility because that's the future reality that we already see in Jesus. Now, on the other hand, there are what our writer describes as these equal and opposite correspondences. And these are the things that help us really see the tension between the inbreaking future and the way things are in the present. So these are not things that are going to just continue on forever. So if you look at our list, something like the mourners or the persecuted, those who are hungry for justice, when the final reality comes, mourning will come to an end. On the great getting up morning, when God gathers in all the saints from the ages, you're not going to be sad on that day, assuming you're in the gathered up bunch. <laughs> when we finally meet Jesus, persecution finishes. That hunger for justice will be satisfied. These things will come to an end. Nonetheless, we're called to practice them now in anticipation of a reality that is yet to come. Right? So there are two different kinds of correspondences in this particular list. Some things we begin now and they will continue forever. Other things we begin now in the hope of a final resolution. These things work hand in hand and it's important to note them because if you'll notice in either case, Jesus is not saying, well, if you do these things, then you're going to get this kind of reward. As in this idea that somehow you're getting payment for something that you've done. And these are not things where he's saying, you have to do this. He's saying there is a blessing, there is something good about anticipating the future. Jesus in giving us this list, is effectively declaring, now that I'm here, God's new world is in fact coming to birth. And when you realize that, you're going to see that there are things that you can participate in now that anticipate the world to come. You don't just have to sit back and say, one of these days... But these qualities, purity of heart, mercy, meekness, peacemaking, these are not things you do to earn a reward, but they are signs. They point us to this greater reality. They're signs of life. They're signs of new creation. They're signs of a new covenant. They are the witness that humans are supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And they bear witness to the fact that there's another reality that's breaking into our world. They're not something that you do out of fear or obligation. They're things you do out of anticipation. 
So these Beatitudes then are not a set of rules and they're not a call to some existentialist or romantic inward follow-your-heart orientation. They are a radical call to anticipate in the present the genuine existence for humans that God has always envisioned, an existence that He's begun already to bring about in Jesus, but one that will come to its fullness at the end of all things. The Christian life is all about anticipation. That's the theme I hope you see that's coming up again and again and again. Why do we live the way that we do? Well, because I don't want to go to hell. Wrong. Why do we live the way that we do? Well, because I was told I have to do this. Wrong. Why do we live the way that we do? Well, that's what the rest of the people do. Wrong. We live this way because we have caught a glimpse of another reality. We have caught a glimpse of a world where God's reign is supreme, where God's values and God's principles, God's mercy, God's love, God's forgiveness is the norm. We see that world approaching, not as a distant reality, but one that breaks into our world all over the place, like light shining through blinds. You get a little ray here and a little ray there. In and through the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit of Jesus, which is active and present among us now, we see these glimpses. And we say, you know, we're going to live in anticipation of that life. We're going to live in anticipation of that reality. And what we see is that when we submit to that perspective, when we begin to live in anticipation, the blessings of God rest upon our lives. This radical call to anticipate God's kingdom is one that has present benefits, that has present ramifications. We're not just hoping for one of these days. We believe that when you live in anticipation of the world to come, you can begin to participate in the peace of that world. You can begin to participate in the hope of that world. You can experience the deliverance that's associated with that world. You can experience the righteousness that's associated with that world in this present life. And that's a beautiful thing. It's refreshing because we're not creating it, but we get to enjoy it. We get to participate in it. And this is what Jesus means when he calls his disciples to be perfect. In, uh, later in chapter 5 of Matthew, in verse 48, be perfect, Jesus says, because your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this word in Greek, perfect, is teleos, which should remind us of Aristotle's telos. They're connected. It's not that somehow you are now without fault or you never make any more mistakes. But this is the word that's associated with goal, completion, fullness. Jesus is saying you must be people who are complete. I think our writer describes it as people of the goal. I like that phrase. When Jesus says you must be perfect, he's not saying, all right, I'm giving you a fresh start. And if you mess up anything, you're done. 
No, he's saying you need to be people of the goal because your heavenly father is a person of the goal. God has a plan. God has a project for the fullness of time. That's the kind of person you need to be. This is the word that we already encountered in Matthew's version of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, he comes asking, what else do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, well, here's the new list of things. He says, if you want to be complete, go sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and come follow me. This word appears again and again in the New Testament. You can find it in James chapter 3. And in each case, perfection is not the rigid adherence to a new list of moral or ethical commands. It's about a character, a type of character formed by God's ongoing work in our world. To be perfect is something that is doable. Say, yeah, but I have flaws. That's okay, because the perfection here is, are you oriented towards the right goal? Are you walking in Christ? If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you're complete. You have fullness. This is what the writer in Colossians talks about. We have come to fullness in Jesus. We've come to completion in Jesus. That's who we're supposed to be. So if we learn to walk in that, to live in that reality, we can indeed become the kind of people that God envisions us to be. So, this brings us then to this question of, all right, if the Beatitudes are about anticipating God's future reign in our life, and that this is what results in this state of blessedness, which includes happiness, but it's the direct consequence of God being at work in and through our lives, what what are we supposed to be up to? We've talked a lot about anticipating the future. We've talked about this future reality breaking into our world, and that we're not just trying to follow our inner heart, we're not just looking for more rules, but we want to cultivate character. Well, what does that look like in practice? Well, when you look in the Gospels, the example we find there is quite striking. What does Jesus do? He sends out his disciples. And they go off into the villages and towns where they're quite surprised. When you read, when they come back, they're astonished at all the amazing things that happen as they go out to serve people and declare the good news. Now, when Jesus tells them to go out and declare the good news of the kingdom, we understand that this is more than just words because Jesus' own declaration of the kingdom of God was more than words. It was demonstrating through his own life forgiveness, reconciliation. Right? He wasn't just walking around with a big sign saying the kingdom is coming and then just sort of you know, pass down the street or something like that. But he comes declaring God's good news and then goes into the house of a sinner to eat. He declares God's reign is even now breaking into our world and then reaches out to heal a blind person, to comfort a leper, to eat with a sinner, a Pharisee, 
a tax collector, a prostitute. So it's modeled in his life. And Jesus' disciples go out and they're astonished that not only are they declaring the good news, but all the resulting signs that followed Jesus manifested in their lives as well. People are delivered. People are healed. People are set free. Notice Jesus did not give them a moral challenge. That would follow. That would result from their lives. But he gave them things to do through which God's work can continue forward. Now, part of the difficulty in grasping this, and our writer points this out, I I think he's spot on with this, part of the difficulty in grasping this vocation to live out the kingdom is that for many, many Christians, they assume that the only point in Jesus' death is to save us from our sins. That it's this transactional thing that you're a sinner, Jesus dies, forgives you of your sins, that's the end of the story. And this is really a shallow view of what Jesus' death in fact accomplishes in our world. Because when you look at the Gospels, the way they present this ongoing work of rescue, yes, it includes the forgiveness of individual sins, but it's designed to serve a larger purpose, God's purpose, and the purpose of God's kingdom. And what you see in the Gospels, and then we're going to see it later in Paul, is that in God's kingdom, human beings are rescued. They're delivered from their sins in order to take their place, not only as receivers, as recipients of God's forgiveness and of new life, but also as agents of it. In other words, Jesus doesn't die just to give us a clean slate. He dies to restore us to our vocation as a kingdom of priests. And if we fail to grasp that, then we misread things like the Beatitudes. We misread things like salvation. We misread concepts like forgiveness. And we get a really short-sighted view of things. In God's vision, the reason He rescued you is so that you can then in turn be an agent of reconciliation as well. This is what we see when Jesus sends out His disciples. He doesn't just forgive their sins, and now they're good to go. He calls them, they walk with Him, they learn from Him, and then He sends them out to do. And if you'll notice, not a one of them is perfect in the sense of without fault. They still have a whole host of issues. Even in the Gospels, they're still struggling with things. But their lack of human perfection is not an impediment to walking with Jesus. Their work's in progress. And the beautiful thing is this. You don't have to be a saint to practice forgiveness. You can do that as a fallible human being. You can have your own host of issues and still go out and begin to practice mercy and kindness and goodness. And the joy, the delight that those first disciples experience, we can also experience when we see that even as 
finite, flawed humans, when we go out and we begin to practice the habits of heart and life associated with God's kingdom, that the benefits of the kingdom come pouring into our world. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you've had this question in your mind. You're going to pray, you're going to help somebody, you think, well, but I'm not perfect. That's okay. None of us are in that rigid sense of knowing it all, being without fault. But we can be people of the goal. We can be people who have come to fullness in the sense that I am walking in Jesus. And He's refining the rough edges of my life. And I am growing in maturity. But in the meanwhile, the work of the kingdom can take place in my life. What a tragedy it would be if you have to wait until you are without sin, possess all knowledge before you can do anything in the kingdom of God. Nothing would be accomplished because there was only one person like that. Jesus. The rest of us have issues. The rest of us have limitations. We have character flaws. We have shortcomings. So did Jesus' disciples. But they went out and they began to practice the kingdom of God. And God's deliverance broke into their world. And God's reconciliation broke into our world. Just on a personal note, I'm happy when anyone prays for me. I'm not waiting for perfect people to pray for me. I want anybody and everybody that will pray, pray for me. Well, you know, that, that person, they're a sinner. I don't care. Pray. Pray, pray, pray. God works through fallible human beings. That's the beauty of his kingdom. That's what's liberating when we look at these beatitudes. Blessings on these folks. Why? Because God's at work through them and in them. This is the work of God. The kingdom of God. We'll preach about this later today. The kingdom of God. It's God's project. It is God who empowers us. And if we're not careful, we start linking the work of the kingdom to our own abilities, talents, and goodness. That's a recipe for failure because there is not a single one of us. I don't care how good you think you are, how talented you might be, how righteous you might be. You are not sufficient to bring about the kingdom of God on your own. There is no one here by virtue of your holy life that your prayers are guaranteed to move heaven. It doesn't work like that. It's the Lord's goodness and compassion and mercy and grace and long-suffering towards us. That's what makes this all possible. And when I recognize that, I can relax. And I can say, this is the work of God's kingdom. And I'm going to do those things that anticipate his reign and trust that he will work in and through that. He will empower that. He will bring about forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, healing, renewal, restoration. That is the calling of the kingdom. Now, Jesus, and then also later for his disciples, when he goes out and he declares God is becoming king. 
And that's what it means to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus goes out and says, repent, believe the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of God's here. What he's saying is not the kingdom of God is in this abstract thing, but God is assuming his rightful place as the ruler of our world. That God is assuming his rightful position as king. When Jesus goes out and announces that in Galilee and Jerusalem, he's not announcing it in neutral territory. Understand, there are, when he goes out and makes this proclamation, already ruling powers, hostile powers. The same is true in our world. And it's important to recognize that, that when we go out to anticipate the kingdom, we're not doing this in a vacuum. We are going out, and this is the challenge. This is where the work comes in, the discipline comes in, the commitment comes in, to go out into our world and announce through our lives the coming kingdom of God. To live in anticipation of that kingdom is to put oneself in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. It's a clash of kingdoms. It's a difficult time. Jesus comes announcing God's rule, God's saving power. And he begins doing things that demonstrate its presence and power, but within a world governed by hostile powers. Saying that God was becoming king in first century Palestine was a way of saying that Israel's God was supplanting Caesar. That Israel's God was taking the place of all the pagan overlords. That Israel's God had come to rescue his people. And there's a challenge. There's a complicating factor in this. This is the complicating factor. When Jesus comes declaring this, it seems that the people themselves had become part of the problem. That's where I want to pause. And we'll pick up next week exploring then this condition of the human heart that complicates the task of going out and living in anticipation of God's kingdom. Because you have to deal not just with the external powers, but there's this matter of the human heart that has to be addressed if, in fact, we want to live in anticipation of God's coming reign and God's coming kingdom. So, just to recap, the overarching narrative of scripture the repeated theme is that God's people are supposed to be a kingdom of priests Jesus comes modeling that bringing that reality into existence when Jesus shows up he declares the times now the kingdom of God is at hand and he begins to teach he begins to demonstrate the power of and the presence of God everywhere that he goes. He gathers people together on the mountain, the new Sinai, and he gives them a glimpse of what the kingdom looks like. Some things, there's a direct correspondence. Some of them, it's this equal opposite type of thing, so that they can see where this thing is going. And they're not just happy people, when they participate in this, they're blessed people. When you are within this framework, blessed are the mourners. Blessings on the meek. Blessings on people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. 
Why? Because God is going to be at work in and through that, bringing about this future reality. Because he didn't come to just wipe the slate clean. He dies on the cross to restore us to our original vocation as people who are supposed to be not just recipients, but agents of forgiveness and new life. And then he sends them out. He sends us out to do the work of the kingdom. But he sends us out into a battlefield. It's not neutral territory. It's not a vacuum. Jesus defeats the powers of the world, the hostile powers. But there's this lingering peace that has to be addressed. What about the hearts? The hostile powers are opposed to the kingdom of God. But there's also this sickness of the human heart that has to be addressed. So we're going to pick up, talk about that next week. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.